Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 50 this morning. I invite you to stand up with me for a minute as we read through God's Word. We'll read this passage together. Or I'll read it to you. You can follow along in your Bibles. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I did not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes, and to take my covenants in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with the vulturers. You let your, your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. For I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and bringing us together on this beautiful morning to worship you together and to study your word together. As we come now to Psalm 50, I pray you would speak to us from this passage. Guard my words as I teach it, they will be accurate and true, um, reflecting well on things you um, have contained here for us. I pray you prepare our hearts to hear these words well. As Psalm 50 calls us to um, see you rightly, I pray that we would see you rightly, understand more of who you are and um, your magnificence today as we study your word, and that would impact not just our, our thoughts, but also our hearts and the way we relate to you. And we, thank you for, we thank you for this passage today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, have you ever met someone, you met someone, you, you talked with them, and then later you learned out this was someone famous? Um, Mary and I had dinner with some friends a while back, and um, we got there and found out they'd invited some other mutual friends, or friends that they knew, over, and we had dinner with them, and, um, you know, knew he was a politician of some sort. Turns out later, this was our district representative for Kansas. Um, we'd had dinner with him. We didn't know really who he was, and so... When you've been through a situation like that, maybe you've met a famous pastor or a, a politician or something like that, 
you look back on the conversation afterwards, you think, oh, I might have said some things differently, or I might have asked some different questions. Um, and when you know who someone is, it changes the way that you relate to them. And that's what we're going to see as we come here in Psalm 50. Um, we need to know God rightly in order to relate to him rightly. And so if you have a bulletin, actually you can look, that's my proposition for today. We must know God, we must, I'll make sure I got right here. We must know God rightly before we can relate to God rightly. So Psalm 50 is going to use that principle. And just as we're, um, as we're getting started here, if you're in the Behold Your God study that we've been doing on Wednesday nights um, with the video series by John Snyder, they use this passage in that study also. So some of this might sound familiar. I think they interpreted this song correctly and we're going to strive to do the same as we're seeing the importance that we need to know who God is so then we can relate worship God rightly just as an overview of how this passage lays out so you know where we're going um, I broke it into three sections um, verses 1 through 6 you see ends with the word Selah so that's a natural breaking point in this first section the psalmist is going to talk about who God is he's going to impress us with God's greatness and we're going to see our main point there is that God is set apart from all others He's like no one else. And then as we move on into verses 7 through 15, we see that God speaks. Well, in the remaining verses of the psalm, we're going to see God speaks to two groups. In verse 7 through 15, he speaks to his people. And then in verse 16 through 23, God turns and speaks to the wicked. So there's these two groups. In the first set, 7 through 15, we'll see that um, pleasing worship stems from genuine thankfulness. That's going to be my second point in the sermon. And then in the last set of verses, 16 through 23, um, we see the wicked. They're not living according to God's commands, and he, he confronts them for that. He says the problem is that they don't know God rightly. And we're going to see there the point that uh, misconduct stems from misknowing God, because they had the wrong thoughts about God. That's leading to these wrong behaviors, misconduct. So as we work through the psalm, the main thing we want to keep in mind throughout all of this is what is our God like? That's the thing we need to get from Psalm 50, and that's what he opens with in Psalm 50. And so we want to focus on those details as we're moving through. So let's begin. Um, we'll just work through section by section here. And we're going to begin with, um, well, first of all, we have a heading. As we come here, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. I think this is the first psalm that we've preached through here that's from Asaph. He actually wrote this one and then um, Psalm 73 through 83 as well. Um, Asaph was a musician that King David had appointed to um, minister before the Lord, before the ark. Um, Asaph was part of the procession when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. So that gives us kind of a time frame. At least this psalm will be written during sometime during the reign of David or maybe Solomon. I'm not sure how long Asaph lived. Um, so that's the context. If you want to read more about Asaph, you can look at 1 Corinthians um, 15 and 16. That's where he's mentioned. So it's a time when, the, when Israel is flourishing under King David. Okay, so verse 1 through 6. I'll read through those again. And again, we'll see... God is set apart from all others. That's going to be our main point for, for that section. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by a sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judged. Selah. The psalm opens with this, this first line, which catches our attention. It says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken. We don't know yet what he's spoken, but we do know who is speaking. 
And he gives, depending on your translation, either two names or three names. In the NASB, it's split into three names. Um, it's the mighty one. He's the one who's powerful. He has strength. He's able to accomplish his purposes. You also see that he's God. Um, that's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's a general word meaning his position. This is God we're talking about. This is God that's speaking here. And the third name is, um, it says the Lord, or if you're the kids, you'll see it's probably all capital in your Bible. The Lord would be Jehovah, or uh, I think in Hebrew it's technically Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H, which they didn't pronounce, but um, it's the, like a personal name for God. It's the one that God used in Exodus 3 when he tells Moses, go back to the people of Israel in captivity in Egypt. Tell them that I'm, I'm going to save them. Um, verse 15 of Exodus 3 says, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, that be Jehovah here, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. So we see the, the name Lord used oftentimes, or Jehovah, oftentimes in connection to the people of Israel. So these are the three names telling us right here at the beginning of the psalm who is speaking. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. And now we're going to wonder, what does he say? Well, first of all, we see in um, the end of verse 1, he says he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From this, we can see the authority of God. And we can see that he has authority to summon the whole earth. Um, and we see the extent of that authority. It's from the rising of the sun to all the way to the east to the, where it sets, all the way to the west. And so we see that his authority is over the entire earth. He summons all the people. The God who spoke the world to creation is now speaking again. He's gathering all the people together. And we, we're going to see as we go through these verses, it's like a courtroom being called in order. He's gathering people we're going to see later. He's going to gather the heavens. Everybody's coming together for this um, judgment. As we go through verses 1 through 6, we see God is at the center of the attention here. So it's not surprising to come to verse 2. We're going to see uh, the psalmist describes the beauty of God. He says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. So we, we say Zion is the city of God, the place where God dwells. Um, Recently, we looked at Psalm 48, and it spoke there of Zion being this place of beauty, and it's a place where God makes himself known. In this passage, it says that God shines forth from Zion. So from a backdrop of all things that are beautiful, God is more beautiful than that. He shines, he stands out above all that. We also see his involvement. If we look at the beginning of verse 3, it says, May our God come and not keep silence. Um, if you're reading ESV, it says, Our God comes. Or in ASB it says, may our God come. Either way, the same thing. God's coming. He's involved. He's not keeping silent. He's not disengaged with it. He's not disinterested. He's here. He's, he's engaged with what's going on. Um, now, what would the mighty one, God the Lord, be like when he comes? We're going to see that as we come to the end of verse 3. We see that he's powerful. It says, fire devours before him and is very tempestuous around him. We don't use, I don't use tempestuous very often in my vocabulary, but I looked it up for you kids. It's, it's meaning like a strong wind. You think like a tempest. It would be a storm. The stormy, strong winds. Uh, so we have the wind and fire. Um, as we had read from Exodus, um, we have, I'll read that excerpt again. We read Exodus 19 today of the people at Mount Sinai. We see their clouds, the fire. It's, it's a similar picture of God coming. Um, Exodus 20, verse 18, so this is right after the Ten Commandments were given, says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. 
Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us. We will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. He said, Fire devours before him, it is very tempestuous around him. We also might think of the time when Elijah met God on the Mount Horeb, which, which Rory read for us, um, where it says, um, God told Elijah, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord is passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. Then when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. He went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Again, we're just seeing this theme of when God's drawing near. Oftentimes, we, his power is displayed in the, in the fire, in the wind. Um, we won't go there, but you think of when God speaks to Job. speaks to him out of the whirlwind, another place where you see that. And as a side note, I thought it was interesting when Dan was preaching last week on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes on Acts 2, what are the signs the Holy Spirit has come? The sound of rushing wind, tongues of fire were involved there as well. So um, maybe not in a, such a terrifying way, but similar things in that case as well. So um, Psalm 50 agrees with the other accounts in Scripture. When God comes, he comes with a dreadful, unresistible power. Next we see in verse 4 we, the purpose. Why is God summoning everyone together? Um, we also see the extent he's not just in control of earth, but also over heaven. He says, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. So we can maybe picture someone who could summon a large group of people together. Like maybe a powerful king could call his kingdom together. But God can call not just the people together, but even the heavens, the angels, to come for this final judgment. And, and we see he's called his people to judge. It also kind of changes the tone of everything we've read so far. We're thinking, okay, get everybody together, but oh, it's, it's for judgment. And so it's uh, begin to be more sober as we realize that people won't be able to stand before this mighty God. The God who revealed himself at Sinai, how could people stand before him? Um, the heavens are called together to, to witness this trial of God's people. Um, We've heard God speaking several times, at least saying that he's speaking. He's summoning, he's calling them together. Now in verse 5, we're going to see what does he actually say. He says, Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We see here that God has a relationship with people. He says, Gather my godly ones. Gather the ones that are marked by godliness, that are marked by their imitation of God. They have a character that's like God's character. And he says, These godly ones are the ones that made a covenant with me. They have a defined relationship with God. And specifically, he says, they made a covenant with me by a sacrifice. So probably the initial readers, um, Asaph's readers, would have seen it and thought back to Mount Sinai, which is where God called his people. He invited them into a covenant with him. They agreed. Animals were killed and, and blood was sprinkled on the people and on the altar. And they entered into a covenant with God made by sacrifice. So until now, in Psalm 50, we've been considering this holy God, and we could only expect that wrath and destruction would come on people that were called to stand before him. But then in verse 5, we see how it is that God could forgive people, and they could be brought close to him. It's through sacrifice. In this way, God's righteousness isn't going to be compromised. And we, we know ultimately this is pointing us to Christ, and Christ's sacrifice that makes us right with God. Romans 3 describes how that works, and it says that the death of Jesus was in place of believers, and demonstrates 
God's righteousness. Um, before Jesus' death, the sins had been dealt had the sins had previously been dealt with by animal sacrifices, which was just a covering for the sin. It couldn't actually take away their sin. When Christ died, it perfectly paid the punishment that we deserved, and therefore we can have our relationship reconciled with God. So it displays God's righteousness by having a sacrifice. He was he's a just he's dealt with sin fully, but he's also dealt with it in a way that we can be reconciled to himself. The angels that were standing by watching this trial, when he declares it's they're in covenant with him by sacrifice. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. So they agree, they sh- uh, he, uh, yes, he's handled this well, he's righteous. The heavens declare his righteousness. God has not ignored sin, he's dealt with it righteously. Now verse 6 gives us one more description. It says, for God himself is judge. Uh, again, telling us the position of God. He's in the place to decide man's fate. Uh, he summons all to stand before him. He gives the final word. None can contradict his judgment. These verses end with the word Selah. It calls us to stop. Think about that. Think about what God's done. What you see here, God comes out. He's the focus. Um, he comes out in his glory at the gates of beautiful Zion. Every man and woman are summoned to stand before him. All heavens are gathered to see. God will judge all his people. And he calls his godly ones to himself. And verse 1 through 6 is it's not like an orientation. Now, here's what to expect when you get there. But it's not just a seating chart. You stand here, you stand here. It's something to impress us with who God is. He is power. He's this great judge. Nobody could possibly stand before him. Yet, he's calling his godly ones to himself because of the covenant that's been made with them by sacrifice. So again, our point from this, these verses especially is that God is set apart from all others. At the end of each section, I'm going to talk about just a few application or application questions just to think on. We can um, especially align our thoughts to what we see here. And so we'll do those now. Um, the thing we want to see here is we can't stand before God on our own merits. It's clear that we don't, we're not righteous enough to stand before this holy God. Um, and also should be asking ourselves, how are we in covenant with God by sacrifice? God said from all others, no one's going to point to on his terms. So I think God this, these verses are setting the flavor what's God like as we move now into the rest of the passage, which is going to talk about how should we be relating to this God. Now as we've seen God as the mighty judge, we've seen all the people gathered, now we're going to jump back. I think, the, I think that first six verses is like a glimpse to the final day of judgment. Now the rest of the psalm jumps back to now, how should we be relating, how should we be anticipating, how should we relate to God now, anticipating that final judgment. So we'll read through verse 7 through 15, and the point of these verses we're going to see is that pleasing worship stems from genuine thankfulness. Verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I shall rescue you. And you will honor me. So we see here, God first is addressing his people. Verse 1, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. God's going to address his people, and we see right away that 
there's trouble. He says, I'm going to testify against you. Something's wrong. Um, he starts to present his case. He says, I am God. You're God. Uh, so he's God, and he says he's your God. He's the one you should be worshiping. We would think that God's people would be worshiping him rightly, um, but something's wrong. God's people might be asking, what? What's wrong? We're going through the motions. We're doing the sacrifices. God continues in verse 8. He says, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. He says, sure, you're, you're offering the sacrifices. Um, the morning and evening lambs are being presented. But you misunderstand the purpose of those sacrifices. Um, we're going to see that their attitude was wrong in the sacrifices. Um, they had a lack of sincerity, a lack of thankfulness. Um, as we continue down through verse 9 through 13, God says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? God's telling them, I don't need anything from you. Uh, I own the beasts of the forest. Cattle on the hills, birds in the mountains, everything that moves in the field, it's all mine. I was out for a walk this morning, heard the birds singing, you know, through the neighborhoods, you know, there's birds everywhere. God knows where they're all at. I couldn't have found them, you know, but I could hear there's hundreds of them out there. Um, God knows where each of them's at. He said, I've got all of that. I don't need that from you guys. Um, he said, it's all mine. If I was hungry, I don't need you to feed me, bring me something to eat. The world is mine and all it contains. So do you think I really need the blood of um, bulls and goats? Uh, the purpose of the sacrifices is not about providing something that God needs. Um, it should be our expression. The, in their times, they're bringing the animal sacrifices, an expression of, of their grateful attitude towards God. So God said, what is it he's actually after? In verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. He says, if you want to worship me, worship me rightly, bring your sacrifices with thankfulness. Worship me with gratefulness. Um, sacrifices are not about you providing for me, because I don't need anything. Pay your vows. Do what you promised. Be faithful to your commitments to me. Verse 15 shows um, what that ideal relationship should look like between God and his people. It says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. He says, Call upon me. Uh, when we call out, we're admitting that we're weak, we're helpless. Like, I can't, I can't handle this on my own. So I'm calling out for help, calling out to God. Also shows that we see God is the one who can help us. That's why we call out to Him. Um, when we're in trouble, it says when we should call out to God. It says we should call out in the day of trouble. Maybe you've ever had uh, road trouble on the road with a car or something. You feel bad calling a friend like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. I need some help. Whatever the thing is, you're calling for help. You feel bad bothering someone. God says, no, do call to me. Called me in that day of trouble. That's when I can help you. Um, God doesn't say, God says, I shall rescue you. He doesn't say, I'll do my best or I'll, I'll check my schedule and if I'm not too busy, I'll come help you. He says, I'll rescue you. Um, this is what God wants in a relationship. Now, of course, we have a caveat. It might not be the way we want it to be solved. It might not be like right away the problem is out of our life. He might leave that in our lives. So we have to continue depending on Him and he sustain us through a lot of trouble and Maybe that in the short range it doesn't look like we had help, but in the grand scheme of eternity, God will rescue us. So um, that's how He wants to be our God and wants to rescue us. He likes to be in that position. Um, he wants us to be humble about ourselves. He wants to be sure of His power. We call on Him in trouble. He hears and He rescues. 
And the result is we honor Him. And we see His salvation. So some application questions for these verses. Um, what motivates our worship? Um, are we just going through the routines? Or are we responding, responding in thankfulness? You know, are we coming here together on Sunday mornings? That's the time we worship the Lord. Not the only time, but a time we worship the Lord. We ask ourselves. I should be asking myself. Why am I here? What is it that motivates my worship? Um, when we're giving sacrifice, maybe it's time, maybe it's money. Why are we giving those things to the Lord? Do we think that He needs them? He needs to have the money so He can accomplish His projects or, or get things done? He doesn't need anything from us. He has all that. Um, maybe we think that, oh, God can't get the gospel to that person unless I take it to Him. He might be glad to use us to carry the gospel to that neighbor or that whoever that person is on your mind. But he doesn't need us. He can accomplish those things without us. When you think of Esther, um, sorry, Esther, Mordecai tells her, like, God could use someone else to deliver his people. He might use you, but if you don't, he'll use someone else. He doesn't need us, um, but he's willing to use us. We want to be available. Um, Also, you might think, when we have a day of trouble, or when we had trouble last week, who do we call? Do we ask God for help? Not that it's wrong to call someone and ask for help, too, you know. But are we taking our problems to the Lord, or are we trying to solve them with our resources and our own connections? We need to be calling out to the Lord. He delights to save us. And then after you come to that situation, and God's delivered you and provided, who's going to get the credit for it? You know, you come and you tell the story to your buddies, like, hey, guess what happened last week, and this was a pinch, but we got out of it through our cleverness or something. No, you need to give God the glory for the way you honor Him, for the way He saved you in those situations. Also, in our own salvation, we're sharing our testimony. God gets the glory in that as well. Um, so, again, to recap, uh, if we're going to worship rightly, we need to know that worship, pleasing worship stems from genuine thankfulness. Knowing who God is puts in the right place so we come and humbly with this. Now we're going to turn to the last verses of Psalm 50. Um, God's addressing people, turn and address last verse 23. From these, we'll see that misconduct stems from, no, it's not tempered, but it, it fit well with the rhythm there, so I'm going to use it, and if it bothers you, you'll probably remember it better that way. So, misconduct stems from misknowing God. Um, now, we pause a minute as we move into these verses, and think about a time when you maybe been on a, you may have got an audio message, and press one through. Um, there's a hardware store I often call to get information about rentals. And the first was like, press one for store hours. You know, you expect that. Press two for rental information. I never listened to the rest of the messages. I just pressed two. And so we're tempted to do that when we read through this passage. We think, oh, there's God's people. That's for me. And you might ignore whatever else comes after that, the other options. But we need to not do that. We need to listen to all the options on the menu and see maybe some of the application there for the wicked also applies to me. Maybe I need to learn from the warnings to the wicked as well. So don't tune out the last part just because it's addressed to the wicked. See that we all we need all the information that's contained in this psalm. So we're going to move now into verse 16 through 23. I'll read the, through those for us. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes, and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and stake the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you forget God, for I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. 
and to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. He opens out by addressing the wicked. He says, he asks them a confronting question. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Uh, we see from these verses, it seems like the wicked were still talking about God's commandments. Maybe they're even teaching God's commandments. Um, they're speaking about the covenant of God as though they're included within that covenant. But God says, what right have you to do that? The evidence is against you. And he begins to give them the evidence. He says they're despising God's word. Verse 17, for you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. They don't value the wisdom that's found in scriptures. They don't welcome the correction that leads to sanctification. Um, maybe like when you're fishing and your hook comes up with moss, you just throw it on the bank. He says, you throw my words behind you. It has no value to you. You discard it. You, you forget about it quickly. We also see that they enjoy bad company. Verse 18. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you associate with adulterers. Uh, now, it doesn't say that you are a thief or that you are adult and adulterer. He says you're associating with these people. You're keeping bad company. You know bad company corrupts good morals, so you can see where that's going to lead eventually. But even they might say, I'm not actually doing those things. It's like, well, you're comfortable around those things. You're not disgusted by them and trying to get away from anybody associated with those things. You're, you're comfortable around those things. You're friends with the wrong crowd. Um, you're enjoying bad company. Maybe the wicked think that, oh, it's not that big a deal. Or maybe they think that, Oh, I kind of like seeing somebody who's worse than me because relatively I don't feel so bad. Whatever the reason is, he says you're enjoying bad company. He also says they're sinning with their mouth. Verse 19 and 20. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's tongue, your own mother's son. So verse 19 is kind of a play on words. Um, it says... You let your mouth loose in evil, your tongue frames deceit. When it says frames, that's like joins or joins something to it. So you see a contrast. You, you turn your, your tongue loose to evil, or maybe you fasten your tongue, hold it tight. Either way, it's to deceit. Both, either, whether you turn it loose or hold it tight, you're, you're having it on the wrong topics. Um, maybe you let it drift with the conversation, um, like a boat on a river, just kind of let it drift with the current. The conversation carries you around, you end up slandering your brother, or maybe you hold it fast to one topic, but even then, you're holding on the wrong topic. It's something like deceit. Um, God summarizes the situation in verse 21. It says, These things you have done, and I kept silence. So in the absence of God correcting them, they figured they were on the, on the right track. Um, you might ask yourself, well, why didn't God say something? Why did not why did he remain silent? Maybe he should have spoken up. Well, we know from verse 17 earlier, they hate discipline. They don't want to hear what God has to say. Um, we also see that well, God is speaking up. Right now, He's speaking up. They're going to have another opportunity to repent and turn because God's confronting them on these things. So, um, till now, He's kept silent, but He's speaking now. And if they disregard what He says now, it's just going to prove His word. They hate His instruction. Um, it's kind of like they're driving with Google Maps. Have you ever been driving and you didn't realize Google Maps was silenced? So, you're not hearing your turns. And you're just, you think you're on the right road, but after a while, you look down and realize that, oh, it wasn't giving me my navigation that I needed. They've been going. God's been silent. Um, they weren't getting any feedback. They weren't getting the instructions they needed to turn around. He says, you thought I was just like you. And God says, here's what's the underlying problem. You thought I was just like you. Um, he doesn't say, you said I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. It's easy for us to say one thing, but do something else. And our lives will generally show by actions what we actually were thinking, not just what we were saying. 
Their lives are showing that they thought that God was just like them. Um, and you can see how it's easy to fall into misconduct and, and, and harbor sins when we think that God is just like ourselves. We think, well, it's not that big of a deal to me. Maybe it's not that big of a deal to God. And so they, 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 think, it, they think they can get away with it because they think God is just like them. You don't want to serve a God that's just like you. God, that would be like having a, a God that's just like you, just like a friendly neighbor or someone who's not going to be able to save you, just as weak as you are and perfect as you are. You want a God that's holy and just like the God we read about in verses 1 through 6. You don't want a God that's just like you. God has been silent, but now he's going to break the silence. And we come to verse 21, the end of verse 21, he says, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. And it's time to reconcile our thoughts to reality. Thinking something is one way doesn't affect what's actually true. Now, I could think that my chair is going to hold me, but that doesn't mean it's going to hold me. Or you know, I have a key. And I had a roommate once who had a key to our house. We had given him an extra key we had. We thought it was the key to the house. After a few months living there, he finally came home one day when nobody was there and the house was locked. It wasn't the key to the house. He wasn't able to get in. It was, we didn't know it. But he was sure the key was the right key to the house. And so just because he was confident, we were all confident. It didn't mean it would actually unlock the door. So when you're thinking something, if you think God's just like you, doesn't have anything to do with whether God is just like you or not. You want to make sure that your thoughts are reconciled with reality. God says it's not the way you thought it was. Verse 1 through 6, that shows what God is actually like. And you don't measure up. You're not even close. Psalm 50 ends with some instructions for the wicked. He gives them command in verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God. Just think about it. They're kind of like the Selah we had in verse 6. He says, stop and think about this. Let it soak in. You forgot God. You forgot what God was like. You need to recalibrate. He gives them a warning in verse 22b. Or I will tear you in pieces, and there will, there will be none to deliver. If the wicked continue in the wrong thinking about God, it's going to lead to their destruction. And we can see that God should be honored and glorified by their worship. But if they refuse to do that, he can be glorified by their destruction. He says there will be none to deliver. Even when I destroy you, it's going to be clear that, wow, this God is powerful and mighty. There's no one that could save from his power. God will have the glory even in their destruction if it comes to that. But God is merciful, so he's given them a warning again. He does desire they repent, so he confronts them here. And he gives them instructions on how they should respond rightly. That's verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. And I say, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. It's very similar to what we read in verse 14 and 15 with instructions to his people. They need to bring the sacrifice of thanksgiving. They were to fulfill their vows. Call upon God, see his salvation, honor him. So he says that here to the wicked again. They should respond to God with thankfulness. They should order their ways aright, no longer loving what is displeasing to God. For those who repent of their ways and respond with right attitudes and right actions, they're promised that they too will see God's salvation. So either way, whether whether they're in the place of God's people or the place of God of the wicked and they need to repent, the, the conclusion is the same. Right actions of obeying God and right attitudes of responding to God with thankfulness, seeing our humbleness and his greatness is, is the prescribed in both cases. Let's consider some application questions now for these verses. Um, in what ways might we be thinking that God is just like us? In what ways might we be assuming that God's priorities are aligned with our priorities when, when actually they might not be? Um, might we be the ones speaking of his statutes, his commands, while at the same time we might be disregarding their application in our lives? Um, what kind of people do we hang out with? Um, 
what do we talk about? I think in the, you know, there is something where in the world, the people we work with, not everybody's going to be perfect or believers. It's not saying we don't interact with them, but the company you enjoy hanging out with or the people we listen to for entertainment or whatever it might be, what kind of company are we actually choosing when we have the, have the choice? Um, when we sit down and relax and we get comfortable and we start talking and let your guard down, where does your conversation go? Are you slandering your brothers? Maybe siblings, maybe church family. We will be careful that we don't let our tongues loose for evil. Um, it says in verse 21, they were in sin and God kept silent. If God stops correcting you and pointing you back on the right road, would you notice it? Are you sensitive to him correcting you in sanctification? And would you notice, like, hold on a second, I haven't heard for a while. Unless something's wrong here. We should, be, we should be always listening for God. And they forgot about God. And how often as we go through our weeks, we forget about God in the situation. You start thinking, I've got to solve this problem myself. Instead of calling out to him for trouble, when there's trouble. Um, have we honored God this week with thankfulness? Are we eager to see the salvation of God, thank him for it? And if not, why not? We must know God rightly, or we can respond to God rightly. God knows that, so he gives us this passage, Psalm 50, so we can know him more rightly. The true God is holy and powerful. He is set apart from all others. Pleasing worship stems from genuine thankfulness. God doesn't need anything from us. Our worship is to be a response to all that he's done for us. He's a noble God. We know, or we must not think that he is just like us. As we've seen, misconduct leads, stems from misknowing God. So, when you meet someone famous, the interaction goes a lot better if you know who they are before you get there. And you'll never meet someone as famous as God. And someday we're all going to stand before him. So be diligent now to know him rightly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage and, and the things that you have um, taught us from it. We pray that you would bring these truths to our minds as we go through the week, that we would not be those who forget about you or ignore you or think that you're just like us, that we would have right thoughts about who you are, and that would lead to a right response, right worship, right conduct as we go through the week. Um, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, I'll t- open it for questions or comments if anyone has anything. Probably more in that passage that I missed, so feel free to add to it. If not, I'll turn it over to Pete. Thank you, Justin. That was uh, 